0: Well, I want to tell some personal things as we start this morning. Um, we're, we're starting the book of Mark, and the title that I've, in a sense, given to this first message out of uh, Mark chapter one is Preparing the Way. It's really about Mark's rehearsal, as it were, of John, the one who came baptizing, as he was the one who prepared the way for the Messiah to step into the life of Israel. Uh, I, I was thinking about how to prepare things. I mean, even something very simple where my wife does an amazing sacrificial job of doing something like preparing food for us. You know, I get to sit down and just enjoy it. She has to spend the hours and minutes getting things ready. And sometimes it's easy for us to take for granted those kinds of things that, that take preparation. Uh, it's, it's interesting that uh, you get people who say, well, Brad, you just work one day a week. And I'm kind of like, well, no, it, it, uh, Doesn't quite work that way. There's some other prep stuff that we have to go into, not only Sunday, but other ministries. Uh, Most of you would know uh, that I like to golf, not nearly as much as I'd like to these days, just because of responsibilities. But one of my uh, fascinations this weekend was the number of firsts that happened on the PGA Tour. They happened to be in Mexico Uh, And uh, they have done the tournament down there before, but for those of you that know golf, this is the first year that the PGA has sanctioned the tournament in Mexico to be included with FedEx points, which won't mean anything to many of you, but what happens is players, based on how well they play, earn FedEx points. So at the end of the year, there's about 30 of them that play, and the winner wins $10 million dollars. So FedEx points are fi- kind of important. Well, this weekend was the first weekend that the PGA sanctioned that the tournament in Mexico would qualify to give players FedEx points. Well, the other benefit to this weekend is that it's the Mexican Open is played at the resort my wife and I uh, go to down in Nueva Vallarta, so I get to watch these guys and go, I know that hole they're playing. I get to, they play it a lot better than I do, but I know that hole that they're playing. So that's kind of fun. They also have a, more of a record number of uh, Mexicans who are playing this weekend, because it's an open, and several of them qualified. So, but that didn't just happen, that took a lot of preparation. Uh, the, these, there's a lot of these different firsts. I was thinking back on uh, Golf Legacy, and it was back in 1952, when the PGA uh, started considering opening up the golf world, the professional golf world, to the black community because that was not available to them. In fact, it was a pretty exclusive group. Uh, one of the uh, individuals uh, that, v- well, what they did is they voted as a, as a committee to allow black players to play, and it was back in 1952 they were hoping they would get them started in the Phoenix Open as well as the uh, Tucson Open. Uh, one of the individuals who got invited to one of the tournaments happened to be... Um, boxing champion Joe Lewis, who actually happened to be a very good amateur player. He was an amateur, got invited to the tournament, but there was a professional black golfer that because he was black was not invited to the tournament. And so Joe Lewis made a big stink about it, rightfully so, because the PGA rules didn't apply to amateurs. He could come and golf, but he couldn't qualify for anything. And so he made a big fuss about it, rightfully so, and they ended up changing the rules on that. And so at some point, I think it was the Phoenix Open, there was three black golfers who got a chance to play, and they really paved the way and prepared the way for other black golfers like Tiger Woods and others to play down the road. Sometimes we don't realize the struggle it is to prepare to break open new avenues like that. It it is way more difficult than most of us think. There are people that go through enormous struggles to try to open up things that should be, they should be entitled to and should be able to participate to, but for some reason, they don't get a chance. Uh, it wasn't until 1975 that Lee Elder uh, became the first professional golfer that had his tour card and was able to participate. And so it was a, it was a tremendous first, but there's a lot of prep that goes into change. I don't know how well you do with change, but usually most of us don't deal with it very well. We need a long runway in our lives to make changes. Uh, when our spouses ask asked us to do something and we don't want to do it, then it sort of sits around for a few years till we finally get the idea that maybe this is something I should do. Or we ask our, our other spouses to communicate to us in a way that doesn't sound disrespectful and it sometimes takes a while for them to learn how to do that. It takes a lot of prep, and when we begin the Gospel of Mark, we have an individual named, we often call him John the Baptist. Uh, That's a way to translate it, that's kind of an Americanized way to do it. It's literally John the one who came baptizing, just so that we don't think we're claiming a denominational right or some other kinds of thing. Uh, He was the one that came, but he came to prepare the way for Messiah to step into Israel. And he was it. He became, as we'll look at in a minute, he was kind of the solitary figure that was cutting new ground and paving the way for Israel to receive what they had always hoped for, but they knew it was gonna be a struggle. Because Israel had got themselves locked in to a certain religious mode that was hard to make changes. In fact, it was so locked in that there are some interesting experiences that John had with the Pharisees and the scribes when he started his ministry. And he did it differently than the way that religion was done at that particular time. So he was going counterculture, and he was going against the norms. He was going against the cultural status quo. He was doing everything different than the way they had been doing it for decades and generations and forever, basically. But John, the one who came baptizing, was preparing a new pathway that provided a new sense of hope and a new trajectory for life that wasn't just built on ritual and tradition. And so as we begin this, I want to read the first several verses of Mark just so you get your minds filtering through the reality of what he's talking about. He begins by saying this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. If we were in Mexico, it would be chapolinos. It wouldn't be locusts, but such as it is. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus made a comment about John in Matthew chapter 11 where he said this. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? a reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he who it, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John, the one who came baptizing. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You know, I don't know how you define your sense of significance in life or what success in life looks like to you, but in our culture, that's a difficult thing. It's always about bigger and better in comparison. The more money you have and the more toys you have, then that becomes the sign of significance and success and security. Well, John was stepping into a culture that admired those things as well. In fact, Jesus reiterated that, that that one of the things we're gonna discover is that the greatest obstacle to responding to the Messiah was going to be wealth and riches. But it wasn't the only thing that they had to battle. And, And as we begin to look through this, I want you to at least take a step back and examine what do I think makes my life significant? What makes me feel like I'm making a difference in the world? And as we begin to explore that, I hope that you can see a little bit of John in ourselves. And and I hope that you'll walk away this morning thinking about maybe my ideas sometimes of success and significance may not always align with what God says of significance. Think about it. Here's a guy coming and eating locusts and honey, living in the wilderness, dressed in ragged clothes. He's kind of the renegade that's off on his own, doing his own thing. And yet Jesus himself says there's no one that has ever been born of man that's greater than John. That's not the label most of the people there are gonna give to him. It's not the label we would give to him and we would never aspire to say, I wanna be successful like John. I'm hoping maybe I can change your thinking about that this morning. John started off with a mission, and his way was preparing the way for the Lord. He begins by making the statement that the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but then he does something unusual, especially unusual because he's writing to Gentiles for the most part, probably Roman Christians. Obviously, there'll be some Jews amongst them, but he does things, as we've mentioned before, that Matthew does. he doesn't do what Matthew does, and he doesn't do what Luke does. As we've mentioned before, he eliminates all of Jesus' early life, They don't care, it's not important to them. He almost skips over his baptism and temptation uh, compared to the other gospels. They have whole sections devoted to it and Mark's not that interested. He does mention it and we'll spend time in it. But again, what he's dealing with is he's saying, listen, if you really want to understand the gospel, you need to understand Jesus, but you need to know that he's a Jesus that impacted his people. It wasn't just, hey, this is what I believe and I'm off on my own and I get to isolate myself and and I'm happy where I'm at. He was the kind of gospel. Jesus was the man who stepped into the lives of other people, and so that's what we're gonna look at, and he begins by quoting Isaiah the prophet, and there's basically two quotes here. The first one is, behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way, and it actually comes out of Malachi chapter three. Now, just in case you don't know, Malachi wasn't written by Isaiah. There seems to be he's borrowed some concepts from Malachi that reiterate exactly the same thought as he does in Isaiah of chapter 40, and he's trying to emphasize something for the people of Israel, at least when John comes on the scene trying to prepare the way for Messiah, that they need to understand that this isn't just John doing his own thing. John's not just running antithetical like, Martin Luther did to a, a, a religion at the time that was suffocating people and, and keeping them from God's word, he was, he was doing something that was very much in line with the greater story of God and what he had done in the past with his people, but they had lost sight of it. The, the passage in Isaiah is interesting. He, the idea of preparing somebody is, is that I'm going to give you the information and resources you need to be able to respond properly to when this person comes along, when this good news touches you. he is, He's trying to make them ready, he's trying to prepare them, but you and I both know that change is hard. The scribes and the Pharisees have been control of the religious framework for decades, for hundreds of years. They, have, they had really scoped out a, a system of traditions and liturgy and formality that they had control of. They made even their own rules up when it came to the Sabbath. They had constructed what we might call the perfect sense of human religion because they had the basic social structure of the the community in control, they influenced all of it, and people just kind of went, yeah, okay, this is what we're doing. But when he gets down to the facts, he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, and let me just take you back there to see what Mark would have had in mind when he's talking about the gospel, because it's a little bit different at the beginning of the book than where it ends. Isaiah 40 says this, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, with her, uh, her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 40, if you're not familiar with it, is 66 chapters. It basically mirrors the 66 books that we have in the Old and New Testament. The first 39 are really about God's discipline of an Israel who had give lip service to God but their hearts were far from him. And he had driven them into captivity because they basically had abandoned God. But starting in chapter 40, the rather 27 chapters, really talks about God taking them out of captivity and restoring them back to, into relationship with him and to the land that he had promised to them. And so the very first words that come out of here is listen, Jerusalem, God's disciplined you enough, you've paid your dues, God has dealt with your sin, and now God's gonna send a messenger that says, listen, there's hope on the horizon. There, there's, we're, he's gonna regather you. He's gonna restore all this relationship that you had with God that you've abandoned. And, and the key statement in there, it says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. So when John comes on the scene, and, and Mark quotes this, this passage back in Isaiah. He's saying, listen, Israel, I'm coming, and he's, we'll talk about his baptism and that in a moment, but he's saying, listen, if you want to know the gospel, if you want to know the good news that God is, is that I'm that messenger that Isaiah talked about, and, and you're about to see the glory of the Lord, and I want to prepare you for it. In all of your history, there's going to be something so unique that's about to come on." into your environment, into your space, that there's generations of of Jews, of Israel, who have looked for the Messiah, and they haven't seen him, and I'm here to announce to you that one of the greatest moments in all of history, aside from his birth, which he doesn't deal with, but one of the greatest moments is that Jesus is about to be inaugurated as the Messiah who's gonna come, and you're gonna see the glory of God. and the, and yet they weren't ready for it. And so he's coming to help prepare them because the concern would be, well, it doesn't matter if Jesus shows up here, we might not even recognize him. It doesn't matter if Messiah shows up. We're so stuck in our ways, we're so stuck in our own religion, we're so stuck in our own status quo that they might not see the reality of God's glory. They think it's wrapped up in their programs and in their traditions and their realities and, and their legalistic faithfulness to those particular dictums and human rules and traditions. And John's gonna come along and say, look, it doesn't, it's not about that. It's about God himself and Messiah and the glory of God, not the glory of what you've constructed. And so he comes to them and he says "The part of the good news is you're about to see the glory of God and I'm here to prepare you to respond right to it. The second quote is Malachi chapter three. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And then notice what it says. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then the tone changes a little bit. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purify the silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So when the Lord comes on the scene, he's gonna come to his temple. And Jesus made trips, literally, to the temple that was in Jerusalem. He was one who who, who presented himself as the glory of the Lord and so much of Israel missed it. There's five things that were true about it. The good news of Israel was revealing the glory of God. It was in the person of Jesus. The gospel will be announced by a messenger crying out in the wilderness to prepare Israel for his coming presence seems in the wisdom of God he knew that no matter how magnificent and how glorious and how hopeful and how powerful this is, without preparation, they wouldn't respond to it well. It often shows the hardness of our heart, often when it comes to responding to the things that God wants to do. This good news is juxtaposed or con- compared with the Lord's purpose to do a spiritual deep cleansing of a people who had given lip service to God but had their heart was far away from him at this point. Everything came, became an issue of duty and tradition and following somebody else's rules. The good news also comes with judgment. If you read further into Malachi 3.5, you'll see that those who harden their hearts will be disciplined severely. And finally, that Mark specifically identified the gospel with a person of Jesus Christ. And so he does two things here. One, he announces the gospel or the good news to Israel as Messiah is coming on the scene that it's not gonna have the technical language we talk about, that he died and rose, or was buried and rose. That hasn't happened yet, so that's not it. They wouldn't have understand that, but they understood the coming Messiah. Even the disciples struggled with this in Acts 1 when they said, are you gonna restore the kingdom because that's what they were looking for, the Davidic king who was going to restore all the fortunes and the power of Israel. But as he he comes into this, he, he starts by saying, listen, Israel, you're about to see the glory of God. I'm his messenger. I'm here to prepare that you need to receive him. And if anything is gonna move forward, you have to start with the king who comes as a servant. And you know the journey through Mark and the Gospels is that The problem is, is that their hearts were so hard as a a nation that it ended up in the death of Jesus. We live in a world where the same kind of hardness is often taking place. Not necessarily with the world, but often with believers. Can't stand institutional church anymore. We're gonna do our own thing. We're gonna, and, and, and the times we're caught in this turmoil because we feel like we're seeing some of the same struggles that people are caught more in tradition and ritual and and rules and regulations rather than in the glory of God, in the person of Jesus, the one who can transform hearts, not just conform us to rules and regulations. And so as we move through this, his his mission was preparing the way, and let me just mention, we can't, if we got into this, you think Romans was long, this would be like take forever, but there's four things that were true. One is it was intentional. He wasn't hiding in a corner, he was proclaiming to all of Israel because he's trying to prepare this nation to be responsive to to Jesus when, when Messiah was here. It wasn't just about his birth, I mean he's cute and cuddly, but he doesn't stay there because Jesus is gonna present himself as the king that they need to submit to. There's lots of people who love Jesus as a baby. He's cute and he's cuddly, we like to keep him that way because we can, he doesn't, he's vulnerable. He, he can't do anything there, but as a, as, a, as a messiah, as the servant, the son of God who comes on the scene, he demands a certain level of authority that is far different than a child in a manger. And while lots of people love the child in the manger, they won't submit or respond to the servant who is the messiah. And so John comes on the scene and he's proclaiming to all Israel and we're told that all the people in Judea in that area in Jerusalem were all coming out to see him. They were curious about this person but I also want you to know it was inconvenient. It's very interesting to notice that John didn't go to the synagogues and try to reshape what was already there. We're gonna see that further on as we get into Mark about the wineskins is that there's certain things that are almost so locked in in certain contexts, that they're, you can't change them or they'll just crumble, they'll break apart. They're almost unchangeable. And so he doesn't go to try to reform the system, he's calling people out of the wilderness to come and hear the message of God. The wilderness is a place where God has done some amazing work in the, in the life of his people. I mean, he delivered them from Egypt, but he ended up, because of their lack of faith, taking them through the wilderness to purify and and weed out the people who didn't have faith so that he could take a generation into the promised land that were refined, that would live by faith, that would trust God, and they would understand his glory in their presence and live according to what he said, not what their fears dictated. And so the wilderness is a place where God sent his messenger to call people out of the world that they were in to come and and have a new beginning. A new beginning that was, that could change the trajectory of Israel. And so it wasn't done in the synagogues, it wasn't done on the corner street, it wasn't done in their everyday routines. It was inconvenient because he was calling them out of that place and they had to travel, which probably wasn't as big a deal there as it would be for us. You know, if you're car broke down and you had to, instead of driving down to the corner store or to the cub or whatever to get food, you had to walk it. You go, we can do without, we're not doing that. I mean, it's easy for us to get lazy. I think they face the same thing, but it would have been different. And so John is out there in the wilderness and he's proclaiming a message and calling people out of their world to hear the message of God about the glory of God and Messiah who's coming. And so in this mission, it was inconvenient for them to drop their things and go and see what was going on. But it was also intrusive. We'll talk about this in a minute. Because he wasn't, he, it, it definitely wasn't a prosperity gospel. His message is, you need to repent. You need to be, if you understand repentance, you need to be baptized for the idea of the forgiveness of sins, and we'll talk about it in a minute. But this is no make everyone feel good type of message or gospel. He's saying, listen, if you want to be prepared for Christ, if you want to see the Son of God and you want to stand before him and and not shirk away from him in shame, it begins with a message of repentance over our sin and our moral skewedness. And, And so he is sort of rubbing it where it would probably hurt. And he's making no excuses and not apologizing for the fact that people needed to repent. And it was imminent. I mean, I'm sure you know the sequence. John was conceived six months before Jesus was. So, like, there are cousins, and John becomes the one who gets the privilege to announce that my cousin is the Messiah. That'd be a little weird, but I can't think of one of my cousins that I would want to do that for, but. Not that I don't like them, but they don't rise to that level of importance, (laughs) just like I don't. And and so his, but I want you to notice, if we move from that a minute, his method. When he was calling people to repentance, it was inconvenient because it was in the wilderness. We've mentioned that. God has constantly been calling people out of the world. That's the, the, the whole element of being a holy people is God calls people out of the world to himself and then he changes them so that now they become a child of God. We can use all kinds of descriptions. They they become his ambassadors. They become individuals who bear witness to the reality of what Christ has done. And he'll send them back into the world not to be like the world, to be in the world but not of the world. And their whole perspective and their whole values and their whole system is gonna be different than that of the world. And that's what God is doing with John is he's sending him before him and he's saying, listen, there's something kind of on the scene that's going to rock your world, because this isn't going to be doing things as normal anymore. And if you're not prepared for this, it's going to crush you. And he didn't give them a 400-page workbook to work through how they get prepared. It begins with the simple reality of what he's going to say is that the intrusive reality that every single individual, and and whether it's the Jews as individuals or the nation of Israel, it begins with repentance, metanoia. It literally means to change one's mind. Most people tend to extrapolate from that, it's not just changing my mind, but it's, it's changing my whole perspective, it's changing my heart. That the way I think about things right now is I'm repenting and I'm changing my mind about the way things are going in my life, whether it's my beliefs or my values, whether it's my priorities in life, whether it's my behaviors, my habit, my character, whatever it is, I understand that the way I am isn't good enough for God and I need to repent of that and I need to embrace something different that comes from God. It's not embracing somebody else's idea, then it just becomes pharisaical. But I'm willing to change my mind about who's in control of my life, my independence, where direction is, and I'm going to move over in this direction to embrace what God has for me. Listen, I want to pause for just a half a second to say, listen, at the heart of the gospel, even for us, and when we go beyond simply what John was proposing to Israel, is the need for repentance. Jesus, in in a few verses, is gonna say, listen, It's just don't repent, it's not just the idea that I'm sorry that I've made mistakes or done bad things and I want to sort of absolve my conscience of the guilt of doing that. It's not just getting rid of the bad stuff, I have to embrace something that fills the void of what that clutter did to my life. And some people continually convince themselves that if I just avoid doing bad stuff or making bad decisions, or, or I'm remorseful, or I feel guilty about stuff that I've done and I acknowledge it, that that's all they have to do. And usually it comes in our context because, well, I think I'm basically a good person. Like everybody, I mess up. But if I just avoid bad stuff, then I'm good. And that's not what this is about. John's baptism was gonna come in and saying, listen, this journey begins. It's like two sides of a coin. You'll never be prepared, no matter what else you do, doesn't matter how good you are, how well you keep the commands, anything else, whatever you're doing, we have to repent of relying on our own success and our own achievements and our own works and our own goodness, our own traditions, our own religion that we make up. I've gotta repent of that and I'm gonna embrace the glory of God in the person of Christ and I'm gonna surrender to him. And so it's not just what I put it repent of, it's what I embrace. And the danger for many Christians today is, well, they repent of my bad stuff, I'll try to do better, but I'm still in control and I'm still directing my life. And it's a a false gospel. It's a false reality. Because Jesus is not just another book to put on the shelf as a self-help improvement tool. That's not who he is. He died so that because our need is so deep and so severe that we cannot solve it on our own. And so it was important because it's the only way that they could be prepared for the Messiah. I mean, it's really simple. And I will challenge you that the same thing is, is the same truth as the reality today. I remember when I was growing up talking to people saying, well, you know, I just don't think I can accept Jesus, I gotta get my act together first. I'm sure that thought's never crossed your mind. But that's, but there's a ton of pride in that because it says, look at, I don't really trust that God can forgive me the way I am, I gotta clean it up myself, and so I present myself as someone that God says, hey, I want you on my team because you're skilled, you're ability, you got a great IQ, you can get things, whatever, and, and we end up, there's, there's people that think they're Christians who've bought into a false gospel because they, they think they've avoided as much of the bad stuff as they can, and I'm on this self-improvement program where I'm good enough, and John comes to them and slams them with the fact of saying, listen, you've got to repent. And so as he... he struggles through this, he's kind of on an island by himself. I mean, I can hardly imagine being John. And if there's anybody I'd love to aspire to be in the New or Old Testament, it's not going to be John. And if you read ahead, you know how that works out for him. But, but John's sense of significance his sense of worth as a person isn't about impressing the people in the cities. It's not impressing the rich and famous. It's about being faithful to what God has called them to. The problem for many Christians is they're never satisfied with just doing what God wants them to do. It's really hard to be significant in this life and find our security in Christ at the same time. And so, what you'll discover is that his whole method is calling them to repentance. This is the singular issue that you have to deal with. We've talked about that a little bit, but I want to move to his manner. You know, we read through this and we're kind of going like, well, I don't know, might have been the new styles coming out and so this is what he like dressed in and whatever. You know that in our culture we have, you know, new clothing fashions every year this is what you're supposed to wear. John didn't get the memo, apparently. But, but, the, but the point that we read, even in Matthew, is that John was there to prepare people and he clearly was making it obvious to those who are the, in, in the king's palaces that one of the greatest obstacles to being prepared for Jesus, for the Messiah, one of the greatest obstacles is riches and wealth because it, it sort of screams, look what I've accomplished. Look at my success. Look at my legacy. Look at all that I've done. This is what I've accomplished. I don't need a Jesus. I don't need to be rescued from it. I don't need to repent from anything. Well, I might have a few business deals that I kind of scammed somebody, so I may have to sort of be repentant of that, but you know what? I'm good at what I do. What do I need to repent for? But his whole manner of life of living in the wilderness was basically a rebuke to all the rich and wealthy. Not because they wouldn't do what John did, but that became an obstacle to the Messiah. John knew, and it's pretty much a legacy all the way through the scriptures, and Jesus warned it of Israel even when they went into the land of promise in Deuteronomy 8. You be careful because I'm giving you a lavish land full of milk and honey and it's got riches beyond measure and it's, it's gonna be full and you're gonna have everything but I know what's gonna happen when you get in there you're gonna start thinking hey, look what we did. Look what we accomplished. Look at how good we are. Look at how powerful we are and God's warning is and what you're gonna do is you're gonna forget about me and you're gonna wander away and then you're gonna start worshiping idols because you're going to manufacture your own religion that supports your own ego. And so one of the greatest obstacles receiving the Messiah was wealth and riches. One of the greatest problems to receiving the Messiah was status quo. In Matthew, when the Pharisees and scribes came out to figure out what's all this crowd going out to see, like, (laughs) this guy's like the new circus act. I mean, he's getting everybody to go out there. We're gonna go check this out. And they're kind of like, well, we want to get on in this so that we don't look like we're the outside looking in. So they were going to go get baptized by John, and John just rips the skin off them. He says, you brood of vipers, what what are you doing? I'm not going to baptize you guys. You need to bring forth fruits that show genuine repentance because John's looking for a heart response. He says, you monkeys are just out here trying to do something for show, And unfortunately, that's the trap. And one of the greatest hindrances to receive Messiah is our cultural customs and norms. I mean, for you and I, we'd probably talk about it more in terms of my routines and my schedule. I haven't got time for this. I, I, I haven't got time for Jesus. I haven't got time for whatever. I haven't got, we haven't got time for prayer meetings anymore because it just doesn't fit into my schedule and they're not very Interesting. And so they're struggling with the same kinds of things. But what it's telling me is that John is living a life that if he's going to prepare other people for the coming of Messiah, that God's gonna call them to a way of life that doesn't necessarily fit the cultural norms. They're they're gonna have to live with different values and different priorities. They can't just keep doing what they're doing and think they're gonna respond to the glory of God and allow it to change their life. Because the glory of God is not just another book to put on the bookshelf that I pull off once in a while when I need a little piece of wisdom to fix something. Messiah is going to come in as a servant, but he's also coming as Messiah. And the greatest danger, even today, is that people say, well, listen, I'll add Jesus to my life, but I'm not surrendering to him. I mean, his teachings are kind of cool, so I'll kind of mix that in with some of the other religious truths that I've pulled from this religion and that religion and this thing over here and this philosophical thought. But you mean you want me to abandon and repent of all that and and just like align my life with Jesus? Boy, you're asking a lot. That sounds a little presumptuous. And John's going, look, I'm just the messenger. This isn't about me, he even says that. This isn't about me, this is about Jesus. And so his message is the proclamation of Jesus. He even says this, there's one who's coming who is so much greater than I am that I would be embarrassed, I'm unworthy to get down and untie his sandals. Now of course the image he's using is is that a lot of homes and the king's palaces had servants. And when people came in, the servants would actually untie their sandals and wash their feet so they wouldn't drag all the dirt and muck into the house. And that's what servants did. It was not, wasn't even probably the highest rank servant <laughs> in the house. But that's that's what, they, that's what they did. And he says, you know what? I'm not, even, I'm not even worthy to get down and untie his sandals. That's who's coming. Now, he wasn't demeaning himself as much as he was understanding the inestimable value of Jesus. The problem for some of us in in kind of our dysfunctional religion that we've created in our own heart is that there's a lot of Christians who will go around beating themselves up and condemning themselves thinking that's a posture of humility when it's not. Because what happens when, that, when people do that, and I can speak uh, with a pretty good authority because I've been there and done this. Oh, I, ca- I can't get involved. I can't do anything. I could never reach my neighbors. Why? Well, because I'm not smart enough. I'm stupid. I, 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 I don't know how to answer all their questions. Or wonder if I make a mistake and they end up going to hell because I blunder the presentation of the gospel. People who misinterpret this will use this sense that I'm not worthy as an excuse not to be involved in the mission of Jesus. And John never allowed that to be an excuse not to proclaim the message. He's by himself, he's doing this clarion call for people to repent, he got a lot of pushback from the Pharisees and the scribes, but he never allowed his circumstances, he never allowed the people around him to be an excuse to say, all right, I'm done, I'm quit. I'm not getting any perks, I've got no encouragement, nobody's supporting me, I've eaten Dumb lizard legs. This is the stupidest ministry I anyone could ever have. I'm done. Listen, before, before you get too hard on John, there's all kinds of Christians who have exactly that posture. They're spectators in God's program because, yeah. well, when I compare myself to those people, I'm just worthless, I'm stupid, I'm, I, can't, I can't do it. Wonder if I fail and look like an idiot. No, I'm not gonna take that chance. I mean, I just, I can't emphasize it enough. John never allowed this sense of understanding the worth of Christ compared to his own unworthiness as an excuse not to do ministry. That's a, that's a travesty of understanding the glory of God. And so when Jesus comes on the line, John knows that it's about Jesus, not himself. But he throws himself into saying, I'm gonna invest my life in other people in such a way that they're as prepared as possible so that when Jesus comes on the scene, they'll be ready to respond to him. And it tells us, and and the scriptures break this up. I believe simply that John's baptism was a preparatory process that takes something that we would look at as a whole and looks at it in two parts. If people are gonna trust Jesus, they need to repent of their sin and they need to believe in Jesus. So the message of the gospel all the way through the Acts and the New Testament is repent and believe in Jesus and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. But you show me a person who won't repent and acknowledge their sin before a holy God and I'll show you a person that regardless of what they think probably has never experience the life-changing experience where Jesus baptizes our life by the Holy Spirit and moves us from death to life and grasps us into the body of Christ and forgives our sin and removes us from the wrath of God and creates a new person in righteousness and holiness and in godliness that now becomes a child of God, fully accepted, significant in the eyes of God, and fully blessed because of what Christ has done. The story is told of 12 United States soldiers were flying home from Iraq on a two week leave back in July 2004. Before one of the soldiers boarded the plane, a passenger traded his first class ticket for the soldier's coach ticket. As the plane was boarding, other passengers asked to trade their first class seats for the coach seats occupied by the remaining soldiers. Davila Evans, a flight attendant on the American Airlines flight from Atlanta to Chicago said, I was so privileged to be flying with these two groups of very unselfish people. You have these kids who are putting their lives on the line, protecting our freedom, and here are these people who gave up their seats that they are usually fought over and gave them sacrificially and joyfully to others that they felt were more worthy. It didn't devalue them but it recognized the value of others who were giving up their life and putting themselves in harm's way. You really have to have a large heart to do something like that. Some people might do it for show. But I wanna challenge you that when you understand the inestimable value of who Jesus is as your own personal Messiah and, and Savior, The issue of seeing our own unworthiness ought to motivate us to greater attempts to help prepare other people's lives to be receptive to the person of Jesus. See, you might look at this and say, well, that's a good history lesson on John. We know what he did. What does that make any difference for us? Well, let me simply propose this. I think John, the one who came baptizing, is a great example for all of us. Because what happens with John's life is that he is in a world that is pretty dysfunctional. There's a lot of religion, there's a lot of brokenness, and there's a lot of people who give lip service to who God is, but they don't know the glory of God in the person of Jesus. And I want to suggest to you that your mission and my mission and our mission as a body of believers can be best captured by John's mission. That we are a people who are part of the bigger narrative of God, who he says to you, I'm sending you into your world. Whatever your work world is, whatever your school world is, whatever your neighbor world is, And I'm sending you there specifically to be very much like John, the one who came baptizing, where you're there to live in such a way to prepare people to receive Jesus. And instead of making excuses about how I can't do that or I'm not prepared to do that or I don't know all the answers or whatever, because then what we do is we put all the confidence in what I can do, not what Jesus is gonna do. That we, like John, will say, listen, I may not be worthy to untie his sandals, but you know what, it is absolutely so vital that people's eternal destiny is on the line, and I want to do everything I can in my neighborhood and with my, my sports group at my workplace, with my hobby, with my sports activities. Whatever it happens to be, I need to live like John and that my mission is to help prepare people to receive the glory of God in the person of Jesus. That's why he has you there. And it sometimes takes a huge runway because people are bogged down in religion, they're bogged down in self-glory, they're bogged down in their own brokenness. And they need somebody to come along and say, listen, there's hope in the world. It's not in us and what we can fix. It's in the person of Jesus. And our method, the way we need to live is to clearly communicate to people not all 66 books of the Bible, but the key preparation to receive Jesus is to repent of my sin and willing to believe that Jesus can forgive me. But we have to understand that our manner of life may not fit the culture. John was pretty forefront on it, and he was the greatest of all men because he was the forerunner of the Messiah literally and physically being there. We also know where it got him. But I want to suggest to you that we, we can be in the world, but we don't have to be of the world. We have to live by the values and the priorities and the beliefs of of Jesus. And as we do that, we can prepare people to see that God makes a difference in our life through the indwelling spirit of God without having this condescending error of I'm better than everyone else. Because our message is not about us But the one individual who, when individuals repent and believe in Jesus, will baptize them with the Spirit of the living God and change their eternal destiny forever. And I want to challenge do you see yourself like a John? Do you see that God's given you a mission to prepare the people around you to be receptive to the person of Jesus as their Savior? Remember Jesus' words. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why? Because you can present Jesus as a living Savior to your neighbor or the person at work. You don't have to go to Israel to see him. Because they ought to see him in you. Graham Keith, who was the treasurer for the Billy Graham Association, and Billy's lifelong friend was in an elevator with Billy Graham one time, and they were, I don't know if they're going up or down, but someone stepped onto the elevator and then kind of turned around and went, wait a minute, are you Billy Graham? Billy Graham said, yes I am. And his response was, well, you are truly a great man. Billy Graham looked at him and he says, no, I'm not a great man. I just have a great message. It's not about me, it's about Christ. And when we allow our lives to be looked at in the glory of the presence of our risen Savior, we won't spend all of our time making excuses or condemning ourselves, the greatest, privilege that any believer has is just like John, is that we get to live in people's space and in their lives and journey with them so that we might prepare them at some point in their journey to be receptive to the God who can save them. So the question is, you good with that? Are you in on that? Or do we just want to remain spectators? Part of our definition as a church is sharing our lives with those who are lost. You're going to see that in bucketfuls with Jesus. You want your life to be significant? Imitate John. Follow his example. You may not get a lot of prizes from the world, but there's no one greater than those who see the glory of God and understand the privilege it is to help prepare others to receive him. Father, the reality of the Gospel of Mark is overwhelmingly powerful. I love the attitude of John that he saw so much worth in the person of Jesus that he understood that he wasn't worthy even to untie his sandals, but it never became an excuse not to be engaged in preparing others to help receive him. Father, for some of us you need to change our heart because we have often built our whole religion around making excuses why I can't be on mission for you. And they all disintegrate in the face of the glory of God. Because it's not about us, it's about allowing others to see Christ. And even this morning, you may have to do some spiritual surgery and purifying in our own hearts to shred away the opinions of others, my own opinions, the lies that I've bought into. Whether we're parents raising kids, whether we're singles or retired, you've given us a mission to live life in a way to prepare others to receive Jesus. Father, by your grace, help us to be on mission. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.